You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, and so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Jack Clark. Jack is a former rugby union player who represented both the USA and World 15. He has also coached the USA national team, the Eagles, to 16 test victories. He is presently in his 40th year as coach of the University of California Bears. In that time, he has led the team to 24 national collegiate championships in 15s and five national titles in sevens. He's also been named a living legend by the Pac-12 Network and is a member of the USA Rugby Hall of Fame and Cal Athletics Hall of Fame. Jack is a master coach with so many hard-won insights and just a few of them that stayed with me after the interview were the way he talks about mental toughness as being the ability to focus on the next most important thing. The mindset he tries to bring into his team of grateful for everything, entitled for nothing, and how he views leadership as a skill, not a rank. It's a great conversation, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. And just before we go to the interview, 
If you like what we do on the podcast, then head over to the website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. There you will find loads of exclusive audio and video content that you can download and share with your own teams to bring a different context to the challenges that you might be facing. We also have a newsletter that goes out every week that contains the best insights, ideas and recommendations. It's free to sign up and you can find that on the website as well. And now, please enjoy our interview with Jack Clark. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Jack Clark, good evening and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, Paul. Happy to be here. Well, it's going to be a bit surprising for some of the audience to hear an American voice talking about rugby, but you've got a fascinating story and I can't wait to get into it with you. But Jack, something really simple to get us going. Can you tell us where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far today? It's nine o'clock in the morning in the center of the universe. That, that's the University of California, Berkeley campus. And specifically, I'm, I'm in the Doc Hudson Fieldhouse, which is our little office outside of Witter Rugby Field. It's a beautiful late fall uh, kind of morning. Oh, what a perfect. Well, thank you for starting your day with us. We do appreciate it. And I'm very keen to get into this amazing story you've got that takes us from Wales all the way back to America and, of course, to, to many other places as well. But, Jack, maybe I'll start by just name-checking a couple of the great coaches I know you've had first-hand experience with. There was Pete Newell and there's Mike White. And I'm sure there's been many others as well. We were talking about Becky Burley just a moment ago. But perhaps I could just start by asking you, what is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Well, they're great communicators, right? I mean, you, you know, if you're going to move a group of people you know, in a direction together, you've got to be able to articulate that direction and be, be pretty plain spoken about it, right? Be accessible in your communications. And I think that would be the, I suppose, the, the fundamental thing that I see in great coaches. And then I think after that, they all have something proprietary about them. I think you find where they look at the games, their games slightly differently. They probably analyze differently. They, they capture different notational analysis to, to statistics. They would, they would probably have their own. They would be stating things that other people don't even pay any attention to. So I think probably those are the two things that stick out. You played your last ever rugby match as part of the World 15. And if I've got my research right, it was against Wales at Cardiff Arms Park, yeah. which must have been pretty special. What do you remember most now, looking back, about that day? You know, kind of responsibility. I mean, they, they, it was a kind of a poor man's World 15, and I'm the only American that was on the field to start the game. And, you know, geez, don't make a hash of this. You know, they're going to think we're all uh, – None of us are any good if you don't play hard and try to have a good game. So I, I, I remember that weight of responsibility that I felt. I remember how special the old Cardiff Arms Park was. I mean, what a, what a cathedral it was. And unfortunately, I remember leaving the game. I think I only left one game as a player, and it was that game. If you remember that old Welsh front row, I think it was might have been Graham Price, but somebody put an anvil-sized fist into my ribs at one point broken rib, punctured lung, one of those deals. And I spent a few days in a Welsh hospital. I was in the lung ward with the other people that had black lung. I actually, <laughs> but they were a good bunch. I can remember we snuck in a couple of beers. It was, it was actually, you know, not that, 
not that bad for a couple of days. Well, talking about weight of responsibility, your team, the Cal Bears, have been playing for 120 years. But here's the more incredible stat. They've only had six coaches in that time. How do you harness the energy of the past to strengthen the team's culture in the present? I believe that it's remembering the past to the present. And for that matter, anytime there's a function, you know, remembering the present to the past, to be able to introduce these young men that are walking between the lines today. And then, you know, for people that played at Cal long, long ago, I mean, there's still these wonderful, wonderful stories. And I'm a bit of a storyteller. I think you need to be able to tell stories to to be able to engage people. And I mean, it's easy to say we stand on their shoulders, right? I mean, that's the easy thing to say. But when you when you really, you know, fully paint that picture of, of who these people were. A lot of our rugby, you know, we started playing in 1882. In my office here, there's, you know, there's photos of a rugby game with 50,000 people in attendance. And for your audience, this is the what could have been moment in American rugby, you know, where we start off playing rugby. And then we, as a new country, we want to play our own sports, not British sports. So we morph to American football. And the early days of American football were quite dangerous. There were deaths. And, you know, by decree, we go back to playing rugby as our main sport. And so, you know, from 1906 to 1914, it's, it's the number one sport on our campus. And then we, we, you know, fall back into playing American football as the number one sport. And then rugby becomes the second sport after that. And it's remained that for 120 years. Yeah, it's a, it's a really rich experience. You know, Eddie Jones, the coach of the English team, thinks that America has the potential to be a powerhouse in world rugby. Yeah, well, I mean, we have the potential. I mean, when you, you know, we're heading towards 300 million people and a, a country that sits inside of a continent. You know, of course, we have potential. You know, and I and I, I appreciate that when we look only through the lens of rugby, then you know, I suppose rugby is the, I guess, sleeping giant. Isn't that the term that the world uses? But it's not really sleeping, isn't it? It's hyperactive in sport. It's just hyperactive in different sports is really what it is. So we have great potential, but we have a lot of work to do to be able to make rugby a a sport in all of our schools that all of our schools are playing, middle school through high school, through university. And then we we need some structures to develop our, our very best players that emerge from that. And I think it's early days for American rugby still, right? I mean, I think obviously the the best part of our game will be in the future. Well, it might be early days, but you've already had success. You were the head coach of the USA team. You claimed 16 test victories, but on four occasions, you were close, breathtakingly close to beating Australia, Ireland, Wales, and Argentina, which is pretty impressive. And I know you didn't get the W, but you were close, Jack. And I wanted to ask you, how do you approach competitions when you are the less resourced competitor? You've got to embrace being an underdog, right? And, and, and it's, it's not the worst thing somebody can call you, mind you, right? I mean, the idea that you know, somebody else has got better players and they're better resourced and they're better prepared for the moment, you just got to acknowledge it. And then you say, but what the heck, you know, let's, let's, let's give it a lash and let's, let's see what happens here. It doesn't, you know, it shouldn't affect your confidence. It shouldn't affect your ability to go compete. If anything, we, you know, the pressure really should be off when you're playing some team you have, you have no business 
being on the field with that team in some cases. I mean, I, I would remind you that my stretch as a coach began in 93, but in 95, the game goes professional. And, you know, all of the mature rugby nations just opened up this war chest. They took their rugby immediately to the next level, right? And so if it was hard before professionalism, it got unbelievably hard after professionalism for all the countries like ourselves, which were, you know, truly, truly amateur. But yeah, they, it felt like a little David versus Goliath and let's let's give it a go. And, you know, they put on their jersey the same way we do. Let's Let's go see what could happen. Now, Although we came close a couple times, when we didn't overachieve, it was almost an embarrassing outing. I mean, it, you know, we had a couple really rough ones as well. I think besides those 16 victories, I think we got maybe 10 occasions we were within a try, right? And close, but no scalp, really. We, we, never, we never got one of those scalps that we really wanted from one of those mature rugby nations. I think it's within reach, Jack, but we'll have to wait and see. One of the topics that you speak passionately about in the community not just in universities and with sporting teams, is the value of high-performance teams and the benefit they can bring. Could you tell us about the values that you've identified as being critical to high-performance? Well, we have a set of values. I'm not sure that they all point. They speak to our organizational values, what we believe in, what, what we want to measure. But I, but I think that's, that's the, I think, the question you're asking is, how do high-performance teams, no matter what they believe in, how do they go about, you know, kind of making sure every day they're aligned with their values? And, and, and I think one of the first things has to do with um, measurement. I, I knew a guy once and he said to me, why guess when you can know? And, and it hit me because my instincts for our, for our game are really quite good. I mean, I pretty much know what happened after the game. I've got a pretty good idea in my head what we did well and what we need to work on and what were the real trigger moments in the game that that might have swayed it but is that that's not really enough is it i mean his his point of why guess when you can know hit hit me hit me hard that's right we do have to use all of that video analysis we have to make sure that we're using statistics in the right way and that we are truly understanding our performance and and so I, I think it has to do with this willingness to measure, to use applied science where, where it's appropriate. I think that's at the core of every high-performance organization. No matter what they, you know, what they list as their values or their pillars, I think it's this belief of, you know, there's no shortcuts here. We have to do this very, very thoughtfully. You mentioned in there that it really hit you hard. And I know that when you were in New Zealand, there was also a Maori phrase that hit you hard, kia yeah. kaha. Could yeah. you... Tell us how that influenced your thinking. I started researching teams, and what I what I what I found is that if teams were tough, it's because they celebrated toughness. They wore it on their sleeve, if you will. And and once that became clear to me, I really started kind of reverse engineering it. Is there some kind of tough organization out there, whether they're you know in tech or whether they're in sports? Is there some kind of organization out there that is really tough? but that they don't ever talk about it. They don't really measure it. And I couldn't find one, right? And, and so I think that phrase, the Maori people, right, at, at first, right? I mean, it, you know, it's an affirmation. It's a hello. It's a goodbye. It's, you know, be strong, right? And it, there's this idea that we're, you know, we wouldn't be here if we weren't strong. And, and let's wear this on our sleeve. Let's make this part of our identity. I think that's a pretty powerful concept. Jack, I have another Terrific quote from you. You say, but we have to believe that if we're going to get a paycheck as a coach, 
that we can develop young people to lead. It has to be part of the curriculum of what we do. Tell us about some of the ways that you help the players that you lead to become leaders in their own right. Well, it's, it's interesting. So the University of California, Berkeley, where I work, the leading public school on the planet, quite often in all these rankings, right up there in the top five, typically of private, public, every, you know, all the schools put in on a global basis. But I don't think you can find leadership anywhere on our campus. I mean, I, I think we have some like military ROTC kind of program where there's probably a little some leadership there. Certainly, there's collaboration of students working together on a project, but I don't think that leadership is just out there as a curriculum. And it, and it seems to me to be a pretty important attribute of what sports can teach. You know, I've, I've got this glossary in my head, and uh, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an organizational glossary, if you will, for our team. And, you know, we say that leadership is the ability to make those around you better and more productive. And it's, it's interesting to think of leadership that way, to not think about it as a rank, not think about it as who's got the corner office, who's the senior on the team, who's the star player, who's the captain, but think about it in the terms of it's an ability. You don't arrive at it and then all of a sudden you start doing it. And, and if you have the ability to make those around you better and more productive, in my world, you're a leader. You don't need to be a senior. You don't need to be a starter. You don't need to be the captain. You just need to have that ability. And what we know is we, we have a lot of good performers in, in all kinds of sport and business that are, are, are really pretty ex- exceptional as performers, but they don't have that ability to make others around them better and more productive. So you celebrate it when people get it right. You talk about it when people get it wrong. You make it something that they want to become and then over time, like I know it's worked, right? Because I hear back over the years from former players and, you know, for them to be able to, in their own families, to be a leader, to be a leader in their communities and to be a leader in the workplace. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty great thing, you know? And I've said a few times that it's just kind of undervalued because we're, you know, we're in a news cycle where we talk about the next great thing by the next great person. And it's my belief that we don't solve any of the really big issues with a person. Now we need bright people, don't get me wrong, but it's really groups of people that 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 kind of decide they're going to be on a team and they they're the ones, you know, with their nose pointed in the same direction are going to go out there and solve the big problems, you know, uh, disease, uh, poverty, education, all these problems that certainly they're problems in America. And I, I think they're problems around the world. And we're going to solve those with, with groups of people. So I, I, I want our players uh, upon their matriculation to have leadership skills, to be able to be in that group of people that are, are really leading the way. It's so it's, it's fundamental. I mean, we say it around a paycheck, but I don't expect every volunteer that's helping out as a coach to necessarily take on even more than just planning activities for the team and being a coach. But once you get a paycheck, I think that's the point where your obligation isn't just to the team. It's to really to those individuals to make sure they're developing to their best. self. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, leadership is so central to your message. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in all your interviews. Yeah. Your players talk about it. It's clearly very important to you. And I'm just wondering... Was it always there or was there, you know, like this, this moment similar to the moment you had in New Zealand? Was it, was, was something like that? You know, being around the team year after year, season after season, it, it, it turns out to be a bit of a laboratory, you know, where if you're observing what's going on, you know, you're better for it. Your players, the organization, the team, they really teach you what it is you need to be looking for. And what I saw is it's a mistake for the minority to lead the majority and for us to say that's the system because it's pretty easy to say you're the boss everyone else is, is is not the boss and you're the star player you're the captain you're the coach and everyone else is I guess a follower and that didn't feel right to me the idea that you know there's a handful of people and they were the leaders and everyone else was followers so I tried to create a definition that was just more accessible that where everyone could really be a leader and that that organization would be stronger in the end it would be a more resilient organization it just i want everybody on our team to feel like they can contribute to the leadership of the team now when you're young your your toolbox doesn't have a lot of tools in it and you might not be able to lead anytime anywhere like the really good leaders can but you can begin that journey to being a leader i i i want to make sure that it's never rank based that leadership is always seen as a skill not as a rank. Jack, one of the one of the great messages I took from researching you was this whole idea of actually it's your quote, my players will leave this campus with a PhD in team. It's yeah. it's such a great idea. If someone was listening and they wanted to improve their teams and work team, a community-based team, a sports team, where would you tell them to start? If they wanted to improve the leadership of the team, I would just make sure that whatever structures you put in place make it open for other people to contribute to the leadership. A little bit of what we just shared. I mean, so often, I mean, sometimes in, as a consultant, I can I'll work with a business and they'll uh, and they'll say, "Yeah, that that idea of everyone can be a leader. What a great idea!" And then all of a sudden, I'll, I'll show them their own structure that has a quote quote leadership committee. <laughs> And, and where the top executives in the firm refer to themselves as the leaders. And it's like, well, we, we have to change that if we want to open up this to everyone being a leader. Now, that doesn't change chain of command and authority. You know, we need chain of command in order to make the organization work. But leadership doesn't have to be hijacked by the people with the best resume on the on the rugby team and or the best business card in business it, you know it needs to be something that everyone can contribute to you know this place you know you get a parking spot at berkeley if you win a nobel prize right so you know stakes are a little bit high so i suppose there's a few people rolling their eyes when they hear the rugby coach talking about 
his players are getting a PhD in team, but there's no one even, even working on it other than us, the way I see it. I mean, we're, it's, it's truly, truly important to us. And, you know, we, we want to make sure that our, our players are, are matriculating with this really acute understanding of team dynamics and leadership. Well, Jack, many Nobel Prizes these days are won by groups of people. So I think you're onto something. When you talk about the mindset within the team, you describe it as grateful for everything, entitled for nothing. And it's this selflessness comes through as well. And when I listen to you answer the other questions, but I'm wondering how it shapes the team dynamic. You know, it's aspirational really is what it is. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know that we hit it every year to be quite honest, but we're, we're, we're attempting to. And in my mind, I see this big room is where our values live. But the passageway to get there is a mindset. If you can't reconcile the mindset, the values aren't going to mean anything to you is, is, is I guess, what I believe. That mindset of, of, of grateful for everything, entitled to nothing, is, is, is kind of based on, on collegiate sport in America. And it might be true for organizations around the world, but I don't know that. There's a fair bit of entitlement in collegiate athletics. And there's an absence of gratitude. (laughs) And somebody has to talk about it. Somebody has to say that, you know, isn't it amazing that you can put your your soiled clothes in a hamper and you come back the next day and they're clean in your locker? I mean, isn't that that something to be grateful for? There's nutritionists and coaches and sports psych and strength and conditioning. and, And there's all these services dumping into the athletes. And the idea that you'd be a little bit grateful for that is, is powerful, right? Grateful to all your coaches over your life, to your parents, to your friends, to all these people that support you. Gratitude is just a beautiful thing. This idea that you're not owed anything um, makes makes you more resilient is what it really does. I mean, if, if you don't feel like you're owed a break by the referee or if you have to play into the wind both halves, I mean, there's some teams that'll throw them off kilter. You know, anything happens like that, they feel like victims. And, and I believe there's teams out there that are just far more resilient. They don't think they're owed a break. They don't need a break. They're, they're there to compete no matter, you know, what the conditions. Talking about resilience, mental toughness is very important to you. In fact, yeah. I've heard you say it's as important as physical toughness, but it's a little bit harder to train and teach. So I'm wondering, you get these new people into campus every year, you know, they come in. How do you go about helping people develop the skill of mental toughness? It begins by defining it. If, if you say the term mental toughness enough, everyone just nods their head. And if you go into the library, there's 30 meters of books on mental toughness, and they're all probably correct, right? So, and if you went around a room of people and you said, what's the definition of mental toughness? You'd be 10 people in and you'd have 10 different definitions. But yet it's one of those phrases we use all the time. So organizationally, I just think it's important that we we're working from the same glossary that we, you know, that we have a definition. And I would say that my definition for mental toughness has changed three times over 40 years. I had a definition that I didn't really like, but I knew it was, I knew how important mental toughness was. So I used it. And then I used a different one that I thought was a little bit better. And then for the last long time, the definition I've been using that really works for me that I, I borrowed from a cricketer and I, I know nothing at all about cricket, but this cricketer was a really good cricketer and he happened to write a book and he asked, and he said this definition one time and it just so resonated with me that I, I, I borrowed it <laughs> and it's, and it's now embedded in our culture. And we say that mental toughness is the ability to focus on the next most important thing. And, and if you really unpack that, 
you know, you don't have to access mental toughness when things are going well, right? So there's no need for it. And when things are really pear-shaped and you do have to access mental toughness, I think the tendency is to, oh, what does this mean? You know, you play it forward a couple steps, like that that can't be good. You play it backwards, like how did it happen? And and it, you know, it affects your 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 psychic. Whereas people that have the discipline about mental toughness, no matter what happens to them, and in those moments that aren't going well, they have the ability to put all of their energy and all their focus into what's going to happen next. What's the most in, next most important thing, and how do I put my focus in it? So that's what we think. And then I guess you can measure it like anything else. If you really believe in it, you can, you can measure when people are exhibiting really strong mental toughness, and you can, and you can talk about it, right? You can celebrate it in a room. How would you measure it, Jack? How would you measure it? Let's say that somebody, you know, had a had a couple moments in a game that, that weren't great, right? And they they they've made some mistakes that that's those mistakes that they wouldn't normally make, but yet they find a way to kind of dig out of that situation and to go on and find their footing again and get back in the game and not let those mistakes affect them. Well, all that is on videotape. All of that is there's a story that can be told about that sequence. And I'd be the one to clip that story and to clip those sequences and tell that story so that other people would say, ha, ah, I can dig out of this. And how you dig out of it is to put your focus on the next most important thing. So that's an example, if you will. Can you train it? Is there an exercise you can undertake on the pitch to prepare people for that requirement to focus on the next most important thing? I think you can, you can certainly train discomfort doesn't mean that I'm going to lose. You can pressurize players in training activities to where they get used to that pressure and it gets easier. The game slows down for them. Maybe it's really fast at first and it becomes more achievable as they are, they're in that situation more and more. I mean, you know, fatigue is one of those interesting things, you know, how many mistakes of, of both emotional or mental as well as physical we make once we get tired. So obviously having an elite level of fitness is, is pretty important to mental toughness. You, you get used to, wow, I, you know, I felt like my heart was going to explode, but it's really not. And I actually can recover fairly quickly. And if you, as you start to flirt with those outer limits, if you will, of your of your well-being, both mental and physical, you know, you find out that, well, it's not that bad. I'm okay. I am still in control here. I, I thought I was just like a leaf blowing in the wind there for a moment, but no, 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 I'm, I'm back in control of this whole thing. So to a degree, yes, you can train it. Jack, in your opening, you talked about great coaches being plain spoken and having good communication skills. And I'd like to just reference that as I ask you about feedback, because I imagine given your focus on mental toughness, there would be times when you would be giving people feedback that would be very close to the bone. And I'm wondering, are there any particular styles or routines that you found to be more effective than others? Yeah, I think I'm a little bit different in in my communications. I mean, on the training field, there's not enough time to just have a quiet word with the guy, right? I mean, there's there's too many things that need to be talked about. Uh, we can't slow down the training session to talk about them necessarily. And so, you know, I, I ask my players to have some kind of thick skin and to be willing to learn from someone else's good deeds or or, or deficiencies. 
and our learning curve is in, is improved because it's not just about a coach saying to you, step with your right foot, not your left foot, but it's, it's like every coaching point is over the top of all the players on the field, just about. So it's an environment of coaches talking to all the players at once. Now, you're probably have an example of one or two players. You could have just pulled them aside or just used their name and told everyone else, don't worry about it. This isn't your coaching point. But what I attempt to do is to leverage all that. I mean, if you're one of 50 players at training and the coach says two or three things specifically to you, you get two or three coaching points that you can you know, work on. If there's 60, 70 coaching points that are put across the tops of all the players and you can grab 20 or 30 of those, well, your, your, your learning curve increases. Out in the open on the training paddock, we're not going to, everyone would rather just have their coaching privately. I mean, I think it's human nature, right? But it's not going to be that way because we've got four months to get from the beginning to the end of a season and, and we know what we want to be at the end. So we don't have the time to do it that way. That's impractical. It's, it's, it's polite. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nurturing, but it's not going to help our team get to where we need to get. Now, conversely, I love to have one-on-one conversations with players. We refer to it as modeling. They have their notebook out. I have my notebook out. There's strong science, I think social science on this point, of just talking about their strengths, really building a model for them to play the game based on what they do really well. And this could be their mental approach, their physical attributes, their skill levels. It, it can be anything having to do with, with what creates their performance but to really, you know, focus 70% on their strengths, maybe 30% on their deficiencies. I know every evaluation, every one-on-one that I ever had growing up, it was always about what I got to do better. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying, here, here's some things you can do to improve. But reality is that we're not going to do a lot of those things. Some of them will, over time, will we'll move, you know, a deficit into the strengths column. But for the most part, we've got to go make plans based on and build a game, if you will, build an approach to the competition based on what we do really well, based on our strengths. So I'm a big believer in sitting down, talking to a player about their strengths. You know, they say we code our brain in longhand, so they've got their notebook out and they're writing and I'm doing the same. And uh, I'm not going to allow anything to hit that piece of paper that shouldn't be there if somebody says, I'm a really good tackler. And if they're not, I'm going to talk them out of that point. But there's a better chance they might say, well, I think I'm a pretty good ball handler. And I'm going to expand upon that point. Not only are you a good ball handler, you're a good ball handler off either hand. And you can weigh to pass properly, the accuracy, the, you know, I'm, I'm going to make that skill, if you will, come more to life. I found doing these one-on-ones, I kind of stumbled into it and I, I was basing these one-on-one sections on strengths. And I was on an airplane one time and the guy next to me was a British gentleman. And, and what do you do? And I, well, I coach rugby. And what do you do? And he goes, well, I'm a, I'm a researcher. And it turns out he had a book and the book was strengths based leadership. And in strengths based leadership, the author, this Barry Conchie laid out that there's strong science in that, that retention, performance, all of those things have a lot to do with whether the boss or the coach really gets that individual knows them really well. So it made sense to me because I would, I would get these kind of awkward bro hugs, you know, after one of these one-on-one meetings talking about somebody's strengths for an hour. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to see you in five minutes on the field here. What are you, what are we doing here? You know, it gives people a great sense of satisfaction 
when the boss really gets them and really gets their strengths. And it's not just making the list of things that they can do better, but helping them model out and build their performance on what they do really well. When it comes to helping players, I have this quote from you. I'm not sure the game it came from, but it was a championship game where the team lost. And you actually said to them at the end, or this is the quote that was attributed to you, we're hurting right now and the scar will never go away. We all have scars in our lives and these scars are what we draw on at pivotal moments. Yeah. It's a cracking quote. What are the scars that you draw on in those pivotal moments? Yeah. Listen, I just feel this great responsibility to put these young men in a position where they can succeed, where they can put in a ton of hard work and then get a payday at the end. And that that can be a bit of a blueprint for them just to go about life. And then, you know, listen, you you lose some games, right? I mean, there's going to be times when, you know, you're not successful and, and there needs to be some perspective in all of that, right? I can't believe that it's the worst thought for me is that a participant would think because they weren't successful in the end, that it wasn't worth it. That, that to me is my nightmare, right? So I want to make sure that we're going to get something from this that's going to be super valuable, whether we win or we lose, because of how much we're putting into it and because of the process that we're, we're, we're using. So, yeah, I mean, scars are valuable, right? I mean, things you can touch and feel and remember. And, okay, I can, I can pull from that experience. Jack, you've been so generous with your time. I know it's early in the workday and you've probably got to get busy. So just one last question, if we can, and it builds on this idea of teams. And you talked about it before, how you believe that teams are going to solve many of the problems we've got in society, education, poverty, disease, um, whatever those challenges may be. So my question is, if we were to gather the teams that you have influenced together in one big room, what would you hope that they say your legacy is? I haven't spent a lot of time on thinking about my personal legacy. I I guess I would want their experiences to be healthy, hard, difficult, but, but rewarding. And I remember, (laughs) I remember one time that there was a player kind of almost first team rugby potential, but really spent quite a bit of time on in the reserves. Didn't get his name called to be a starter in a lot of the big games. And day or so after his graduation, he asked for a meeting. And I, I have to admit, Paul, I was dreading the meeting because I, I just felt, man, this kid's put in four years of work. And, you know, his payday was not to go play in the big games necessarily, you know. And I think, oh, man. And that young man sat across from me and, and he says, you know, Coach, playing, playing rugby at Cal has been the hardest thing I've ever done. And my heart sunk because I knew exactly where this was going, that he was just you know, it wasn't going to be worth it. And then he finished the sentence by saying, the hardest thing I've ever done that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. I went, wow, that's, that's kind of what I was going for. It, 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 it felt like that's what we're here to do. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be challenging. You should feel overwhelmed from time to time. And, and, and playing's important, but, but growing as a man is more important. I think the benefits of challenge, feeling overwhelmed and growing as a man is a great place to finish. Jack, it's been super to spend a bit of time with you today. Thank you so much. For, the, for your time and for the energy you put into the interview. Great. Okay, cheers. Thanks, Paul. Hi, everyone. You have been listening to the great coach, Jack Clark. I hope you got a lot out of Jack's stories and found a couple of things that you can bring back to your own dinner table, locker room, or work table for discussion. Some of the ideas that Jack spoke about that connected with me 
were his view on leadership as the ability to make those around us better and more productive. How the New Zealand saying of Kiakaha, which translates to stay strong, influences him. How the great coaches are clear communicators and have a plain spoken vision that they align people to. And wanting to leave a legacy of experiences that were healthy, hard, difficult, but rewarding. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Joe at Coaches717, who after listening to our Don Showalter episode said, this is why the best teachers make the best coaches. He was a great classroom teacher and is a great coach. He understands the law of learning. Great stuff, Coach Show. The interaction with the people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.